0: Uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and worship you today. As we study the Great Commission tonight, stir in our hearts the desire to learn and study your teaching and faithfully observe your words. You had put forth the great task of spreading the gospel to all nations, and to those who follow you, a mission to go about that you lead us. Be with us as we study tonight. Amen. Well, nearly 50 years ago, in January 1969, New York Jets quarterback Joe Namath made one of the boldest promises in football history. Two days before his Jets played the heavily favored Baltimore Colts in the now-famous Super Bowl III, he told members of the press, Hey, I got news for you. We're going to win on Sunday. I'll guarantee you. His Jets went on to win 16-7 in one of the most memorable games in NFL history. Leading up to tonight, many other bold predictions or promises have been made regarding the outcome of Super Bowl 52. However, while people in this room may have expressed their desire for the Eagles to beat the Patriots, despite their confidence, just like Joe Namath, there is no way they can truly guarantee their preferred outcome. As you go about your day, how often do you hear promises, predictions, or guarantees that you know will not come true? Have you, how have you felt when someone failed to uphold a promise they made to you? How often do you make promises that you don't see through? Tonight we're going to learn about Jesus' final command to the disciples and the promise that comes with it. This promise is one of eternal importance. One that those who put their faith in Christ can always count on. If you haven't already done so, please open your Bibles to Matthew 28:16 through 20 We'll specifically be looking at verse 20 this evening, and if you have using a pew Bible, the text can be found on page 835. Matthew is the first gospel in the Bible, and is written to a predominantly Jewish audience. We can see this from the very beginning of the book, where Matthew goes through the painstaking process of chronicling Jesus' genealogy, and, and all the way from the beginning with Abraham to Jesus'. This would have been very important to the audience and gives validity to Jesus by showing he is fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy. Before we read the text, let's have a quick refresher of Mike's sermon from this morning. At the outset of Deuteronomy 1, we see God commanding the Israelites to leave Mount Horeb and take possession of the Promised Land. There are several similarities between the two texts, including the obvious fact that they both take place on mountains. Much like we will see tonight with Jesus and the disciples, God commands his people to leave the mountain to go out and accomplish his will. Both texts revolve around a promise. The Hebrews are about to obtain their promised land, long sworn to their forefathers. The disciples are about to receive an eternal promise. Those are just a couple of the similarities. Now let's read Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there's a lot in this very short section of scripture. So that probably explains why Mike wanted me to focus just on verse 20 tonight. We'll be looking at two main topics, Jesus' command and Jesus' promise. Our first point, Jesus' command, is evident from the first word of verse 20. Jesus commands his disciples to teach others to observe all he has taught them. He is now handing over his divine authority to his disciples to impart his words to others. Think of a time when you were taught something, and then you taught that to someone else. I'll give you an example from my own life. Now, it's well known at ABC that I'm a basketball fan. It will come to no one's surprise that I was not just born understanding how to dribble a basketball or the proper form of a jump shot. Someone taught me. They took the time to learn a skill and then show that skill to me. There are a number of people I could probably credit with this, but I'll say my brother was the most influential. While most people wanted to be like Mike, I wanted to be like my brother Bo. However, the act of teaching wasn't easy for him. I had much to learn. I had to emulate what he did. After many hours of practice with Bo, I developed my jump shot, something he still takes credit for to this day at nearly every family function. With that knowledge, I've been able to teach other younger players and will continue to do so in the future. All because I had correct teaching And continue to develop my jump shot according to all that I had observed my brother doing. Now let's go back to the disciples. Jesus had just commanded them to teach the next wave of believers, slightly more important than my jump shot. Up to this point, they had just been learning, and they had been through the traumatizing experience of Jesus' death and the joy of his resurrection. But what had he taught them, and what had they learned? On a different mountain, at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. His sermon covers three chapters and a myriad of topics, most of which are still hotly debated in our society today. We see, we, see this, we see through this in other sermons throughout the Gospels that Jesus commands and expects his followers to follow his teaching. We see in Matthew 5.14 that we are to be the light of the world. We see in Matthew 6, 5 through 14, how we're to pray. In Matthew 7, 12, we see the famous golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, also do to them. For this is the law of the prophets. Now those are just a few examples of what Christ commanded his followers to do. It's worth mentioning that Matthew 28, 20 has a very important word that we often overlook. That word is all not just some, all. We are not called to just obey the commands we are comfortable with or the ones that are socially acceptable. We are called to live a life of full or total obedience to Christ. This means it is important that we keep Jesus' commands. As John MacArthur put it, studying, understanding, and obeying the whole purpose of God is the lifelong task of every true disciple. Christian, you and I are called to faithfully study the word, observe it fully, and impart it to others. To drive home the importance of obeying all that we've been commanded, let's turn our Bibles to John fourteen twenty-three through 26. That can be found on page 901 in the Bibles provided. Now be sure to keep your finger in Matthew 28. We'll be going back there shortly. Just before his betrayal, Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room. And during their time together, he responded to a question from Judas about how Christ will manifest himself to his disciples and not to the world. John 14, 23 through 26. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus is clear in his response. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments 50% of the time, then you love me. He didn't say, if you just keep my commandments on Sundays, then you love me. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my word. If you haven't noticed by now, Jesus' teaching was not designed to tickle our ears. It was designed to show our faults and our need for a savior. If you're like me, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you're confronted with your own shortcomings, and you wonder how you can ever live up to the commands Jesus laid out before us. Well, that brings me to my second point, Jesus' promise. Hopefully, you left your finger in Matthew 28, because we're going to go back there now. Let's read the second half of verse 20 again. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, how is that for a promise? If I, you, I, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Here, those who have put their faith in Jesus are given the promise that they will never be on their own. How can Jesus make such a lofty promise? The authority is in his scripture. One of my favorite passages of scripture is John 1. It sums it up like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Simply put, Jesus can make this eternal promise because he has been there. He was present at creation. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a perfect life here on earth, facing every temptation we encounter. He gave his life for our sins, and he rose from the grave to conquer death once and for all. No one else is qualified to make this promise. But he is. Christian, think of a moment when you felt alone. Think of a moment when you felt the crushing weight of despair. Think of a moment when you're confronted with your own inadequacies, your sinful desires. He is there. Jesus is there, and with all his power and authority, he will give you aid. We need look no further than the first 12 disciples. These are men that Jesus selected not because of their political prowess their societal stature, or their independent wealth. They were largely common fishermen, and one was a tax collector, an occupation that's still despised today. These men were unnoticed by society, insignificant by most standards. Why would Jesus pick them? Even after they were his disciples, they often failed to understand the meaning behind Jesus' teaching and prophecy. A prime example of this is found in John 16, 16 through 18, when Jesus talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. A little while you will see me no longer, and again a little while you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is it that you, he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We don't know what he's talking about. It's pretty clear the disciples were not able to discern Jesus' teaching on their own merit. And if we're honest, neither can we. Our understanding on Jesus' teaching is solely dependent on him revealing it to us. That is why he promised the disciples, that's why this promise to the disciples is so important. He is not abandoning them as as he tasked them with carrying out every unadulterated word of the gospel to the ends of the earth. His promise emboldens them to preach the word with a passion that converted thousands from different tribes, tongues, and nations. It gave them the boldness to continue preaching even in the face of persecution. All the disciples, with the exception of John, were put to death for their teaching. What caused these seemingly trivial members of society to have the confidence to live out their faith, even if it cost them their lives? They had a promise that they were not alone. They had a promise backed up by the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth had been given. They were not guaranteed a life of ease for following Jesus, but they were guaranteed a life of serving true teaching that is far more profitable than earthly riches. We should conclude. It's no coincidence that the gospel of Matthew ends with the promise. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, they were cast out in humiliation. However, God made a promise to Adam's offspring that salvation would come. That salvation came to earth through Jesus, and as we've learned tonight, it's backed up by a promise made to the disciples on a mountain in Galilee, that he will never leave you or forsake you. If you're here tonight and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you're looking at all of his teachings and you see that your words and your actions fall woefully short of his glory, just like every single one of us here, I encourage you to talk with me at the door before you leave. We're not called to simply read his teachings. We're called to repent of our sin and believe in him. So I implore you to turn away from your sin, forsake your own desires, and fix your thoughts and actions on something that fulfills. That something is serving and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe that he lived for you, that he died for you, and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins. Come and serve him, teaching others all that he has commanded out of a heart that is grateful for all that he has done. To my fellow believers, we're not called to simply repent of our sin. We are commanded to teach. We are charged with the great task of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. Jesus is talking to us in the Great Commission. He is vesting all his power and authority on each of us. So be bold in your conversations with unbelievers at the office. Be courageous in sharing your faith in line when you buy groceries. Commit yourself to obeying all of God's commands, not just the ones that are convenient or socially acceptable. Dedicate the time and effort to study Scripture. Let's show our love for the one who saved us from our sin, And promise to be with us to the end. Let's get to work. Please join me in prayer.